Good morning, what in the hills? It just now occurs to me that I'm not wearing my red glasses, so I'm not cool this morning. Oh, man. I, 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 and so I was uh, meeting this dude with red glasses, and I was saying, hey, we're both cool, but you probably didn't get what I was talking because I had my black glasses on, but thought I had my red glasses on. So it turns out I'm not so cool. I know. What happened? I, I, I misplaced them. It's, and plus, these are smudgy. And I don't realize they're smudgy until I get up here, and the lights are on, and you guys all look smudged. So if, excuse me for a second. I don't want you to look smudged. Hey, smudge group. Gosh, you guys look blurry this morning. What's wrong with y'all? Tell you what's wrong with y'all is that, man, we went from 86 degrees on Thursday to today. Man, only in Minnesota. It's not only in Minnesota, but it's, uh... hey, uh, this message is brought to you by the TAP. Any TAP people in the crowd here? TAP folks? Yeah, there we got a few TAP folks. Well, anyways, the TAP, it's a great ministry we got here within the little church. And uh, they have a party once a month. And it's coming up this, this Friday, this Friday at, uh, from 6 to 9. Invite you to come here to the church, and we dance and have a lot of fun. We have folks who've got labels with them and folks who don't have labels, but we take off the labels because TAP is proudly dislabeled, all right? And that's the slogan. And it's a beautiful, beautiful time together. If you have any energy left over, the next night, Saturday, uh, NDY, my band is playing at the dugout. People are always asking, when is the next time your band's playing? So, uh... If you have to choose between the two, go to the Friday one, the tap. But if you have energy left over, then come the next night uh, to hear NDY. Enough of those announcements. Um, so we're in a series on un- unraveling truth in this unraveling world. And uh, this morning I want to look at unraveling scripture. So the message today is called the, the quote-unquote problems of scripture. The problems of scripture. We're talking about the Bible. Um, I'll start with this. this is a, a real famous passage that deals with the inspiration of the Bible. It's from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And here Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God. And it's useful for the teaching, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the person of God may become proficient and equipped for every good work. All scripture is inspired by God. The word there in Greek is theonoustos, and it literally means God breathed. Theo, God, noustos means breath, so it's theonoustos, is, is, it's God breathed. As God breathed for the purpose of teaching, to provide for us correct sound doctrine, and for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Uh, it's, it, it's useful for our growing in righteousness, for our ethics. And so, Many uh, denominations, many churches, you confess that the Bible is authoritative in matters of faith and practice. It gives us the faith that we're to hold on to and the practices that we're to be engaged in to cultivate the kind of lifestyle that leads to the character of Christ, which is the point of the whole thing, is to develop the character of Christ. Now, this uh, faith in the Bible has fallen on hard times lately. Because, see, there's a number of, quote-unquote, problems in the Bible and in, in fact, it's one of the things that's causing a lot of folks to walk away from the faith. Now, this confession that the Bible's fully inspired and, and is useful for doctrine and, 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 and for training in righteousness, it's, it's really the, a, a bedrock foundational conviction of the church throughout its history. The people of God have always agreed that, that um, uh, this body of literature here is, is our, our, our guiding principle, and that every distinct thing we believe as a people— and every distinct thing that we practice as a people 
It's got to be grounded in Scripture, which is inspired by God, breathed by God, for the, purposes, for the purpose of giving us correct teaching and for cultivating a uh, godly lifestyle. It's been foundational, but it's fallen on hard times as of late because of all the so-called problems. Uh, and I'm one of those folks who, encountering the problems of the Bible, uh, ended up walking away from the faith early on. So I, I, I was saved on June 29th, 1974. That was almost 49 years ago. I came to Christ 49 years ago. It's, I'm old. I'm becoming the ancient of days. But uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. And I had a powerful encounter with God. I mean, a really powerful encounter with God. Um, it was life-changing, completely life-changing. Um, and because of that experience, I assumed that everything that this church taught must be the truth, which I later came to the conclusion that's not quite true. But uh, this church taught, as most churches, evangelical churches teach, that the Bible is inspired by God. Since God is perfect, the Bible that God inspired must be perfect. It must be without any errors, inerrant. And I, I believe that blissfully for one year. I, I remember, though, it's at times I started reading the Bible on my own, and you come to some parts of it, and it's like, What? Uh, How is that part of a perfect book? But, you know, you go with the flow because you're a new Christian, and what do you know? But then about a year later, I I take this course at the University of Minnesota, and it was called The Bible is Literature. And I really thought this would be an easy-peasy course because I had already read most of the Bible, and I thought I knew it pretty well, you know, so this is going to be an easy class. Uh, Well, what I didn't know is that they take a very different approach to the Bible than what I had gotten in my Pentecostal church that I got saved in. Uh, they take a, a historical critical view or a scholarly scientific view of the Bible. And this professor, Professor Crawbell, um, he uh, delighted in, in the demonstrating to students all the human aspects of the Bible. All the areas where it seemed to him that it couldn't be divinely inspired. And I'm, I'm going to share a couple of those here. Um, now, if you come from a background where, you know, you were taught that the Bible is a perfect book and you've never heard anything different, this message might be a little surprising to you, so hang in there. What I'm about to say may unsettle a few things in your cerebral universe. So uh, keep, keep an open mind. Because this professor pointed out that, he says, well, you know, Moses couldn't have written the whole, the first five books of the Bible. For one thing, you have his obituary in chapter 32, so uh, that'd be hard for him to write. But on top of that, he says that scientific research in the Bible shows that there's a number of different sources that have come together and have been compiled together. Uh, you know, some of you have heard about the documentary hypothesis and, and that there's these different traditions that get fused together in the panic to different authors. And one of the ways you can tell the different traditions, this professor said, is that they don't always agree with one another. And so he held to the view, it's very common in scholarly literature, that, that uh, Genesis 1 has a different creation story than Genesis 2. Two different traditions about the creation. And they differ from one another. Amen. So if you, there you go. So if you look at Genesis 1, for example, we read this. It says, Then God said, Let us make humans in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Now notice that the land, and the animals, and the birds, and the creeping things, they've already been created, 
And then human beings, both male and female, were created as the sort of the pinnacle of creation. After all that. Okay, that's what you get in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, you have a little different perspective. First, God creates Adam, the man. And then God creates the garden, all the vegetation. And then God creates the animals. And we read this in Genesis 2, verses 18 and 19. And then God said, It's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man, Adam, to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The idea of naming in the ancient world is sort of to identify the character of something. And so in naming the animals, Adam is identifying the character of these things. And the result of it is that the Lord sees that none of these animals are a fit, helpful partner to him. They have a role to play, but it's not as a helpful partner. And so then God causes a deep sleep to fall on the man, and out of, his, out of one of his ribs, he forms the woman. And when man, Adam sees Eve, he says, oh, this at last is born of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is what I'm talking about. This is what a helpful partner is. By the way, the idea of helpful partner, if you think it involves any kind of subordination, it doesn't. A phrase is most often used of God. God is our helper, our helping partner. So you don't want to say that being a helpful partner means that you're the assistant. Uh, no, it, it means that there's a complementariness there. It wasn't found in the animals, but here in the woman, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So notice this difference. Genesis 1. You've got the vegetation, you've got the animals, you've got man and women created together. Genesis 2, you've got the male, and then you have the vegetation, then you have the animals, and then you have the female. So which is it? And if your assumption is, as mine was, that the Bible being inspired by a perfect God must be a perfect book, and perfect means it must be absolutely accurate, well, then you've got a problem here. Because they both can't be telling... The same literal story. Something else is going on there. So already, as I'm taking this class, my faith is starting to get shaken. On top of that, this author, this, this, this professor points out that, well, a lot of the Bible, surprisingly, has got a lot of good confirmation archaeologically. It's surprising how accurate a lot of these ancient stories are. It's not always the case, he pointed out. So, uh, for example, he brought up archaeological evidence that suggests that the conquest narrative that we have in Scripture of Israel invading the promised land, that, that doesn't correspond to the way it actually happened in history. At least it doesn't correspond very closely. Because according to archaeology, the best archaeology we have, uh, it looks like the Israelites gradually immigrated into the land of Canaan, gradually displaced the original inhabitants. There are places where there are a few squabbles here and there, but nothing like an overt invasion. And so, in my thinking, I'm thinking if the Bible was inspired to be a perfect book, well, then you'd think it would perfectly correspond to history, and it appears that it doesn't always do that. So my faith is beginning to get shaken. These are the problems of the Bible. And then the author points out that there's a lot of, quote-unquote, primitive aspects to the Bible, pre-scientific perspectives in the Bible that just aren't true. So, for example, it has a primitive cosmology, which is a primitive view of the universe, Here's basically how the people in the Bible and people in the ancient world in general saw the world. The, the, the sky was a hard dome. You get that throughout the Bible. A hard dome, a firmament 
is the word that's used in Genesis 1. And in that firmament, you find stars. Okay, they're kind of like put in there like you would put, you know, raisins on top of frosting or something. They're embedded in the firmament, and they're, they, they have a certain motion that's supposed to go through. And above the heavens, you've got waters, and you've got windows in the heavens that allow for rain to fall. And you've got pillars holding up the, the heavens and pillars holding up the, the earth, which is flat and sitting on a, a lot of water. And, and under the water, you find uh, the primordial ocean, the chaos. You find Leviathan and Rahab, these sea monsters, and things like that. You find that throughout the Bible, and you find it throughout the ancient Near East. That's how people saw the world. But if the Bible is inspired to be a perfect, good book, a perfect book from God's perspective, wouldn't it have accurate science? And then this, uh, this professor points out that some of the ethics of the Bible reflect a primitive worldview. Uh, things that, that, that we today would just find terribly objectionable and offensive. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 21, we read that rebellious children or children who are drunkards or gluttons or any child who struck a parent was to be stoned to death. Now, I don't know a lot of contemporary child specialists who would recommend this as a parenting strategy. <laughs> hey, if your kid sasses back, you just stone them to death. You know, there you go. Uh, and, 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 and being, having your kid get stoned back then was very different than what it means today, all right? It's, it's a very different meaning. So, so what's with this? Here in, in the Bible, it's supposed to be perfect, good, but it's recommending something that we today would say that is just, uh, that reflects a perspective that's just not right. And, and the death penalty is not just prescribed for rebellious children. You, if you fornicate, you're going to be stoned to death. If you commit adultery, you're to be stoned to death. If you're homosexual, you're to be stoned to death. If you pick up sticks on the Sabbath, you're to be stoned to death. If you go into the temple and your hair is disheveled, yeah, you, you get struck down with fire. And there's all these capital offenses, and you read this and you go, what? Why? How is that? Especially in the light of the fact that Jesus, when the woman's caught in adultery and they said, should we stone her? He says, yeah, sure. Let the first one who's innocent cast the first stone. And then they all walk away because they know that none of them are innocent. And so what Jesus teaches here is if you want to carry out capital punishment, fine, but you got to realize you've got to be sinless to do that. <laughs> so they'll let the first sinless person pull the switch. Yeah, I'm all for capital punishment as long as the person pulling the switch is absolutely innocent. You can't find any of those on, on, on the planet. So what's up with these, these laws in the Old Testament that, that just seem so primitive, so, so uh, barbaric, frankly? And then it's not just the ethics, but this professor points out that some of the theology in the Bible, reflects a primitive perspective, an ancient perspective. In fact, some of the theology of the Bible depicts God in terms that very closely resemble the way other ancient Near Eastern people imagined their deities. In fact, in some cases, biblical authors take songs that were sung to these other deities and they swap out their deity's name and put in Yahweh and they use them. They're very influenced by their culture. So I'll give you one example, uh, 2 Samuel 22. It says, and Then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations of the heavens trembled and reeled, because Yahweh was angry. One of the pictures you get in the Bible is that when Yahweh gets really ticked off, he shakes the foundations of the earth that hold up the earth, that hold up the sky, which is why everything shakes. And that's how you explain earthquakes. And then, listen to this, smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. 
Next time you meet somebody who says, I believe the Bible's 100% literally true, quote this passage to them. Oh, really? So Yahweh's got smoke coming out of his nose when he gets mad and fire comes out to consume people? He's a fire-breathing dragon, basically. And that's how all ancient Nearsen people depicted their deities, and the biblical authors were, were, were affected by that. And that's very understandable, because we're all affected by our culture, but this is supposed to be a perfect book, because it's inspired by a perfect God. What gives? If you start with the assumption that the Bible is a perfect book, perfect defined by our human standards, note this, if you start with that assumption, then the Bible is going to be a very problematic book. And you may find, as happened with me, that then you go to the university, you go to school, you read a book, you meet an intelligent friend who points out that it's not all perfect, and your faith can go right down the tubes like it did with me. Lost my faith for a year, and I never want to see that happen again. Now, there are some people who deny, who, who try to defend the Bible as a perfect book. Uh, and they try to show that the contradictions really aren't contradictions, and that the inaccuracies really aren't inaccuracies, and that the primitive aspects of the Bible are, are, are not really as bad as they seem. And they try to put the best possible spin on all this. And I get that, because if you believe the Bible is a perfect book, what else are you going to do? You've got to try to defend it as a pr perfect book. And I, I actually respect that position because I was there for a number of years. I thought it's what I had to do. And I will say that, on the whole, most of the contradictions, or at least a great deal of them in the Bible, can be explained. And a lot of what seems like inaccuracies really aren't that inaccurate. The Bible's amazing in terms of how accurate it, it tends to be. Uh, and, and I think there's a, a deeper meaning to some of the primitive aspects of the Bible. So some of it can be explained away, but not all of it. And this idea that it's a perfect book without any kind of error, without any kind of human fallible element in it, is, I think, dangerous because it causes people to lose their faith. I found that at some point, you know, you go so far to try to explain away the contradiction, or, and, and at some point you got to say, if I've got to go this far to explain away a possible error, maybe the error is not supposed to be explained away. It began to feel disingenuous to me in some cases. Uh, it's, it's like... And then he asked the question, who decided that the Bible, because it's inspired by God, has to be perfect by our standards? Where do we get the idea that we have the right to set up the criteria to judge the Bible? Like we know what a God-breathed book should look like ahead of time. We don't. We don't have a clue. So we got to start from what we've got. But folks, they start with this assumption, oh, it must be perfect, and then they try to impose that on the Bible, and it causes nothing but problems. So here's the thing. Let's pause. As I always teach here at Woodland Hills Church, and I really recommend this, is that when you're dealing with a theological question, you're wrestling with something, how can the Bible be inspired and yet it has all these fallible human elements to it? How is that possible? It's always important to stop and go back to the foundation. We laid this a number of weeks ago at the beginning of this series. And ask the question, why do you believe any of this in the first place? What's the foundation of your faith? Go back to the drawing board. Start with square one. And as I proposed several weeks ago, the foundation, the center of our faith, I submit to you, is Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ, whose ministry is summed up and culminates on the cross. As I shared several weeks ago, I've got a number of really compelling historical reasons for believing that the Gospels are generally reliable just treating them as I would any other ancient book, submitting them to the same kind of criteria and tests that you submit any other book to, 
in the other ancient book too. And the Gospels pass those tests with flying colors. And I don't have time to get into all that, as I mentioned several weeks ago. Uh, if you want to explore that more deeply, and this is where, in terms of defending your faith, this is where the majority of your energy should be put, the reliability of the Gospels. But uh, if you want to go deeper on that, Paul, Eddie, and I have written several books on that. Uh, the Jesus Legend is one you can get. Um, or uh, Jesus Lorder Legend is a popular version. Uh, and then for more academic types, the Jesus Legend is like 400 pages long and it gets into... We examine every possible theory where G the Jesus of the Gospels is primarily legendary, and I think we do a good job of refuting that. Or you can check out Letters from a Skeptic. Just some resources for you to have to go deeper with this. But I've concluded as I weigh all the pros and cons that I've got good reasons to accept the Gospels as generally reliable documents on a historical basis. And so I believe that Jesus actually made the claims that they say he made and did the miracles that they say he did. And more, most importantly, as I mentioned last week, he rose from the dead. We've got good reasons to believe that is historically true. And on that basis, I conclude that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, am I certain about that? Is there any possibility that I could be wrong? Of course it's possible I could be wrong. Of course I can't be absolutely certain. But I'm confident enough to say I'm all in, and that's what faith is about. I, 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 you got to bet on something. You're going to have faith in something. I can either have faith that Jesus is not Lord, and I'll base my life on that, or I'm going to have faith that Jesus is Lord, and I'm going to base my faith on that. Well, I've got way more reasons to think he is Lord than to think that he's not Lord. It feels to me like it would take more faith to deny his Lordship than it does to affirm it. And so I, I say I'm all in. I'm not going to base my life and all my thinking on the assumption that Jesus Christ is Lord because I've got good reasons to think that that is true. So I want you to notice this. My reasons, and I recommend this to be the way that we all hold to our faith. My reasons for believing that Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, is Lord, don't depend on my being able to explain anything about the Bible. Amen. It doesn't depend on me having a particular a theory of inspiration of the Bible. Um, doesn't it, 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 my reasons for believing in Jesus are centered in history, historical thinking. And I've got philosophical reasons and other arguments as well. But my faith in Jesus isn't dependent on my faith in the Bible. I know that's a different way of thinking about things, but try it on. Um, and, and, and so what that means is this, that since I get all my life and all my worth from what I believe God thinks about me based on Jesus Christ, and the relationship I have with God through Jesus Christ, since that's my, the core of my identity, the core of my security, the core of my feeling of significance, it means that even if I can't explain anything else in the Bible, if I don't have a clue how to respond to these quote-unquote problems, even if I just have to say, well, I guess it's all a big problem, it doesn't affect my core identity. It doesn't affect my core relationship with God. I encourage all of us to have a faith in Christ that doesn't depend on our ability to explain any particular verse of the Bible or any particular so-called problem of the Bible. Because I am so done seeing people losing their faith because they found out that the, the conquest narrative wasn't completely historical accurate or something like that. No, your faith in, you guys, the foundation in the center of our faith isn't a book, not even a perfect book. The foundation and center of our faith is a person, praise God, and that person is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Make him the center of everything. Amen. Now, last night when I was talking through my message, and Mary heard that point. She lost her faith. She, Mary kind of lost it. She was like, what are you talking about? Why would we even believe in the Bible then? See, usually people think that you believe in Jesus because you first believe in the Bible. 
And, and I want to submit to you that, no, we, we first believe in Jesus, and then as a result, we should believe in the Bible. Uh, but I, I still don't know if Mary's quite got it yet. So put on your thinking caps and follow this. So why would we believe in the Bible? And I talked about this several weeks ago as well, so this kind of review. But I think it's important review. I believe in the Bible because see, the Gospels, which I assess as being basically generally reliable, they don't have to be inerrant, they don't have to be inspired, just generally reliable. But those same Gospels communicate to me very clearly that Jesus clearly believed in the Bible. He saw the Old Testament as the Word of God. He quotes it all the time. His, his whole mission, his whole identity is wrapped up in the story of the Old Testament. You can't ever divorce Jesus from the Old Testament. No, he's, he's totally wrapped up in that. And then there's some indication in the New Testament that he, he pre-authenticates the New Testament, that the New Testament's going to have the same status as the Old Testament. And so, so since I have reasons to believe that he is Lord, I have reason to believe that he's not wrong in his theology. I can't correct, if I call him Lord, I don't feel like I have or anyone has the right to say, uh, yeah, Jesus, you're Lord, but you're kind of off on your view of Scripture, you know, kind of incorrect there. Uh, that's pretty fundamental, and he is the Son of God. So when you find yourself disagreeing with the Son of God, why don't you assume that you're in the wrong? And so I, I feel like I have to confess that this, the Bible's inspired. If, if he's Lord, and that's his view of the Bible, that's got to be my view of the Bible. But now notice this. I'm going to affirm that the Bible is the inspired word of God um, on the authority of Jesus. I'm not affirming that the Bible is the inspired word of God because it fits someone's standard of what a perfect book's supposed to look like. I'm not going to believe in the Bible because I think it's completely free of all inaccuracies, completely free of all human elements, completely free of all error, completely free of primitive theology. No. I'm going to believe the Bible because it's on the authority of Jesus. And it doesn't matter what I find in there. If I find contradictions, well, I'm still going to believe it's, it's the authoritative word of God. It just tells me that apparently the authoritative word of God doesn't rule out there being human contradictions and, and human fallibilities and things of that sort. But I, 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 I don't believe it because it conforms to my idea of what a perfect book should look like. I believe it because it conforms to what a perfect Savior looks like, and he endorses that. You following this? So make that the foundation of your faith, your, your faith in, in, in Scripture. Do it on the authority of Jesus. And then also notice this. When we pause and go back to the center, and the center is, is always the crucified Christ, the cross summing up the whole ministry and teachings of Jesus. That's the center. When you commit to thinking through and, and, and basing all of your thinking about God and all of your thinking about everything, including inspiration, when you, when you, when you, when you make that decision to base everything on the cross, well, it reframes everything. It changes everything. Um, it's easy to understand why we tend to assume that a perfect God must inspire a perfect book. Because we always tend to project onto God our own assumptions about ourselves, what we would do if we were God. And so you look throughout the history of world religions, and what you find are that people, we, we tend to project onto God all the things that we want. And so we associate God or the gods with his power, with his wealth and his opulence and extravagance, the good life. And, and our God's greatest as proof, proven by the fact that he lives in the biggest castle. And he's got the greatest army and the greatest weapons. And, and I, our God just shines with the greatest shininess and drinks out of the, the chalice that's the most opulent chalice. And, 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 and so on. we tend to project that all onto God. And so we assume that, of course, 
perfect God who can do anything is going to inspire a perfect book, a book that's going to wow the world by its literary features and just blow away the competition in terms of its elegance and accuracy and all the rest. Because that's what we would do if we were God. But see, if we learn anything about God through the person of Jesus Christ, it's that God has a way of upending all of our assumptions. Amen? He, just, he tends to turn all of our assumptions on their head. Because uh, when, when, when God, in fact, comes into the world, he doesn't come to the, the greatest castle. He doesn't develop the greatest army. He doesn't display the greatest earthly power. He doesn't drink out of the most opulent chalice. When God actually comes into this world, he comes to it in a scandal, born to an unwed pregnant Jewish teenager. Uh, he comes into this world and he immediately becomes an outlaw on the run from Herod. He becomes an illegal immigrant into, in, into Egypt. And then throughout his ministry, he's a homeless itinerant preacher. No place to lay his head. And then he ends his ministry career by getting beaten up and crucified. And all of that, according to the gospel, all of that reveals what God is like. If you see me, you see the Father. Including when I'm running away from the law and I'm a homeless itinerant preacher and I'm an illegal immigrant up there in Egypt. All that reveals God. It's not what we would expect, is it? It's not the way normal gods are supposed to behave. Because see, what Jesus reveals is that God reveals God's power. Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians 1. The power of God is revealed in the weakness of the cross. In the loving weakness of the cross. That's the power of God. God's almightiness is found in that crucified criminal up there on the tree. That's God's power. And God's glory is revealed in the humiliation of the cross. And God's wisdom, his infinite wisdom, is revealed in the foolishness of the cross. And God's being exalted, he's most exalted when he's debased on the cross. This is a God who doesn't conform to all of our expectations. This is a God who reveals his holiness by taking on our sin. And therefore, he reveals his beauty by taking on the ugliness of our sin. This is a God who reveals his sovereignty. He could control everything if he wanted to, but he reveals his sovereignty and the fact that he gives us so much freedom we can end up executing him. This is not a God who conforms to all of our expectations. And so this God appears foolish and weak as he reveals his wisdom and his power. And it's only those who have eyes to see and ears to hear that can really get this. If you're thinking in terms of the, our ordinary way of thinking in the world, what Paul calls the flesh, you're never going to see this, how the power of God is revealed in the weakness and the glory of God is revealed in this humiliation. But God, this foolish and weak appearing God is who is revealed on Calvary, and I'll note this. This is the God who inspires the Bible. And so if, if God, in this full revelation of himself on the cross, if God reveals his strength and weakness and his glory and humiliation, then why would we think that the Bible that God inspires is going to be totally free of those things? You following this? Or thinking about it like this. If, 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 especially since the Bible is supposed to point to the cross, if the whole Bible is inspired, Jesus says this, it's all about him. It points to him and especially to his sacrificial suffering on the cross. So the Bible is inspired by God to point all of us to the foolishness and the weakness of God's wisdom and revelation on the cross. Given that, why would we think the Bible would be totally free of human foolishness, of human weakness, of all the human elements? Wouldn't we expect the Bible to have the same kind of humble appearance as is found on the cross? I submit to you that the Bible that we actually have with all of its human errors and fallibilities, that it's, that's exactly the Bible we should expect 
if we start all of our thinking about God on the cross, or think about it this way, on the cross, God gives us the fullest revelation of his character through the one, the one person, Jesus Christ, who at that moment bore all the sin, all the humanity, all the fallibility, all the imperfections of the world. So clearly God does not have a problem revealing himself through human sin, through human imperfections, human inaccuracies, and all the rest. You following this? If the, if the, if the final revelation of himself is through the one who bears all the imperfections, then clearly God's got no issues revealing himself through imperfections. So we shouldn't be surprised when we find that in the Bible, which was inspired to point us to that God reveals himself on the cross. Um, so that itself blows apart this assumption that a perfect God must reveal himself through a perfect Bible. That is like saying that a holy God must reveal himself through a holy cross. Sorry, it doesn't work. The holy God reveals himself through the sin-bearing cross. The beautiful God reveals himself through the ugly-appearing cross. Uh, the cross blows up all of our ordinary human assumptions about what divine perfection is supposed to look like. So it means this, folks, that if we really anchor all of our thinking about the Bible and everything else on the cross, and the cross like, a, like we should, that it means that the problems, the problems of the Bible aren't really problems. I'm here to announce today that there are no problems. There are no problems in the Bible, not if you start in the right place. There's no problems. It's, it's perfect. It is perfect as it is. Precisely in all of its imperfection. Because it's pointing to the God who reveals himself through all that's wrong and imperfect in this world. There's no problems. Those imperfect, sinful, ugly parts of the Bible are part of his God-breathed revelation. The same reason that the imperfect, ugly-appearing aspects of the cross are part of its divine revelation. You following this? And so those contradictions and those inaccuracies and those primitive aspects of the Bible... They're all part of its inspired beauty because all of those, every time you come upon a problem part of the scripture, quote unquote, or you come upon a contradiction or an inaccuracy or a primitive aspect of it, let it remind you of the fact that this bears witness to a God who doesn't coerce people into believing the truth. A God who works by means of loving influence rather than manipulation and coercion. Every one of those human things bear witness to the God who's willing, always willing, has always been willing to stoop as far as necessary to meet people where they're at, to enter into solidarity with people where they're at, to bear, to bear their sin right where they're at in order to, to continue to influence them in the direction of the truth. Whenever you come upon any of those human aspects of the Bible, this inaccuracy, the primitive aspects of the Bible, let them remind you that, that, that this is inspired by God who always uses people and loves people exactly as they are. A God, amen, who's wise enough, he doesn't need to manipulate and perfect people, lobotomize people into believing truth before he uses them. He's so wise, he uses them in all of their imperfections, and he still accomplishes his purpose. He's a master of bringing good out of evil and bringing smart out of stupidity. And he does it all the time. He's doing it in the Bible, praise God. So thank God. Now, thank God for... I don't want to give the impression that the Bible's nothing but human foolishness and human weakness and accuracies, as I mentioned earlier. It really is amazing how often the Spirit of God breaks through the hard-hardness of God's people. 
And you find revelations of God in the Old Testament and New Testament that are spectacular, that agree with, with the God revealed on Christ. And it's amazing how overall genuinely accurate the Bible is. It surprises scholars all the time how these stories often get it right. Not, not 100%, but they often get it right. And, and it's amazing how the beauty of God comes through. So you thank God for all that. And, and the overall design and the overall consistency of the Bible, given that it's written, you know, it's got 66 books and, and, and there, it expands a great period of time in different cultures. It's amazing, the overall consistency of it. So you thank God for that, but don't be embarrassed by the human elements, the fallible elements, the ugly elements. No, they're there for a purpose too. God leaves those in place to bear witness to just who he is. The God who's revealed on the cross has always been doing throughout history what he does on the cross which is stooping to enter into solidarity with his people as they are, to love them and to use them as they are in order to bring out his redemptive purposes through them as they are, transforming them into who he knows that they can be. The Bible we have right now, folks, is the perfect Bible. Uh, if you just let it talk on its own terms and don't impose on it some pre-manufactured idea of what we think a perfect book should look like. Jesus blows apart our ideas of what perfection is. So I'm going to close by just uh, giving three reasons why I think this is vitally, vitally important for us as a community to hold fast to this. Number one, see, if, if, we hold to the, if we start with the cross and understand biblical inspiration through the lens of the cross, it allows us to affirm without compromise the full inspiration of the Bible. I believe that the Bible is fully God-breathed. And I think it's a very important thing to believe. It allows us to hold on to the full inspiration of the the Bible, but without denying its human elements, or without being embarrassed by the human elements, without feeling the need that we got to explain away all those human elements. We can be honest about this. It allows us to embrace and even celebrate the human, fallen, fallible, and sometimes ugly aspects of the Bible. They are all there to contribute to its beauty. We affirm the full inspiration of the Bible while we accept the Bible on its own terms. Secondly, this perspective allows us, in fact, requires us to affirm that the Bible is fully inspired. And what that entails is this. If it's fully inspired, it means that we're never allowed to just dismiss parts of it. Now, this is absolutely crucial. It means we've got to deal with all of it. It doesn't matter if some parts are inaccurate or if there's a contradiction here or there or there's a primitive ethic or a primitive theology here or there. That doesn't give us the right to just say, ah, then don't don't worry about it. No, all Scripture points towards the cross. We've got to wrestle with it to say, what is God saying to us through this passage? In all of its fallibility, even if it is inaccurate, we're never allowed to just dismiss Scripture. And that is so important because history shows that the minute... Christians reserve for them right to just say, ah, don't worry about it. I don't like that passage. Well, we, we tend to all of a sudden not like all the passages that challenge us. Yeah? You know what I'm talking about. See, now all scripture can't be useful for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Anytime you might go to a person and say, well, hey, the Bible says this, they can just say, well, now, that's just part of the primitive part of the Bible. How convenient. Actually, I was speaking with a young person it was probably 20-some years ago at Bethel College, and, and we had a pretty honest, open relationship, and this young lady mentioned to me that she was, had just moved in with her boyfriend, and um, well, I didn't know what I thought about that, and I was happy she asked me my opinion. I said, well, you know, one thing that comes to mind is I wonder how you deal with 
what the Apostle Paul talks about when he talks about fornication, which is simply sex before marriage. Because the biblical perspective is that sex is to be reserved for marriage. I know that sounds really prudish these days, but sorry, that, that, that's scripture. And her response was, well, you know, Paul, Paul said a lot of kind of screwy things. He's a first century Jewish guy. What, what do you expect? Well, that's really convenient, you see? That's really convenient. Uh, you know, whatever the criteria we use for what is primitive or what's not, it can't just be our personal preference, folks, because yeah, our hearts can be desperately wicked, and we're really good at, at, at talking ourselves into getting our way if we want to, uh, regardless of what objections are out there. Now, the criteria ultimately is, is, is Jesus Christ. Whatever conforms to the character of Jesus Christ uh, is, 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 is the revelation of God breaking through. Uh, we can find areas where, where the, the hardness of people's hearts suppress the truth, and there we see God accommodating their, their, their first century fallen perspectives or whatnot. But the criteria is not just, I prefer this or that. Because sometimes, folks, love confronts us. Amen? Sometimes love tells, tells us stuff that we don't want to hear. So because God loves us, he says, you know what? What you're doing right now is not good for you. This is not loving to you. It's not loving to others. I want you to quit that. And maybe a part of yourself goes, I don't want to quit it. I like it. It's just too much fun. Well, too bad, man. God knows what's best for us. And it's so important that we yield to God when the Spirit is telling us it's time to lose that attitude, lose that behavior, because it's just not loving. And on some level, we know that too. We, we know that what the Lord's telling us is, is, is right. We just don't want to hear it. So, so it's important that we don't, we don't ever reserve our right to say, nah, don't worry about it. And there's a lot of progressive Christians that are doing that right now. No, we have to deal. The, the, the Bible is to us sort of like our constitution. Um, it, it's like the Bible is to the church what the constitution is to the United States of America. Um, and maybe that's not a very good analogy because right now I want to say not, not very much. But... Um, up until recently, <laughs> you know, you could disagree upon the, the Constitution. You know, judges have different ways of interpreting it and different ways of applying it. There's a lot of issues there, legitimate issues there. But as long as you agree that you've got to deal with the Constitution, you're not just free to dismiss it. Well, you, have, you stay in the same ballpark. You're orbiting the same planet. It, it binds you together, and so it is with Scripture. And the church has always had a lot of differences of opinion about how to interpret this passage, how to apply this passage. Is that part of the cultural relativity of the Bible, or is that a timeless teaching? And a lot of legitimate issues like that. Fine. But as long as we agree that we're not allowed to just dismiss it, we have to deal with it. We have to wrestle with this scripture. Well, it, 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 throughout history, it's been the thing that binds us together as a community and binds us in, in, in unity with a church tradition throughout history. We all have to wrestle with the same text. So we affirm the full inspiration of the Bible. It means we have to take it all seriously, even as we accept all of its human fallible elements. And that leads to my third point, my final point. And that this is so important because, folks, the Bible is ultimately our story. It, it, it's, it's a God-inspired story, our story. We are part of a people who, our story goes back to creation. And we're, we're, we're part of the narrative that goes through Adam and Eve and extends into the call of Abraham. We're, we're the descendants of Abraham. Uh, and, and, and we're part of that story that goes through Isaac and Jacob and, and Joseph and that, the story of, of God delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt and the story of, of the, the, the conquest and the period of the judges and all the mayhem that went through all that. that that's part of our story. And we're part of that story where God then becomes a human being. And he, 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 Jesus Christ takes on the full identity of Israel and fulfills the mission of Israel. And then opens up the very meaning of Israel to the entire world and invites 
non-Jews to become honorary Jews by becoming incorporated into him, the true Israelite. And we're part of that story. We're God in becoming a human being, going to the cross, dying on behalf, frees us from our sin, frees us from evil, dies for all of creation. We're part of the story where God calls us, as he's always called his people, to bear witness to his character and to his plans. Over and against all the character and the plans of the world, we're called to be a countercultural people. We're called to be ambassadors who represent a different kingdom and a different king to the world around us. That story goes all the way back to the beginning, and that's our story. And see, in, in, as we read this story and hear this story over and over again, it forms our imagination. We all live in some story or another. A story that gives us our identity, gives us our values, tells us what life is about. And it's so important that we immerse ourselves in the biblical text to be absorbing the, the world of the Bible, the story of the Bible, God's perspective on things, because the truth is that we are in this fallen world constantly bombarded with other stories that try to capture our imagination. We in America are bombarded every day, hundreds of times a day, with every commercial that comes our way with the story of America, which is the story of us being consumers. And we take on, in our imagination, we become the ones who want to get ahead and pursue the American dream and get the bigger house and get the bigger, better job and better, better, better and more and more and more and get your best life now. And you can pull, totally believe in Jesus and all the rest, but yet if your imagination is formed according to America, you're going to be acting and feeling and thinking according to America. And you're not going to have this countercultural witness. To have a countercultural witness, you have to have something that's different from what the culture already offers. That's why the Bible says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. No, you're supposed to be salt. You're supposed to be different. It's supposed to be other than that. And so when we immerse ourselves in Scripture, it gives, it gives us a chance to form ourselves according to that story. And here's the thing. For all of its human elements, when, when, when you submit to the Scripture and, and, and study the Scripture, God uses it to form us, to form our character. You can find when you're reading Scripture sometimes in the most unexpected way, all of a sudden something comes out and convicts you. It challenges you. If you're open to it, God's committed to using Scripture to form our character. And so I want to end by encouraging us to once again become a Bible-reading people. Uh, it used to be the case that to be a Christian, was you meant, it meant you were a Bible reader. That's just what Christians do. You study the Bible. It's the Word. Uh, the last 20, 30, 40 years, that's really fallen away. In fact, a recent study showed that something like 10% of Christians read their Bible on a weekly basis. Uh, it, it, biblical illiteracy has just gone through the roof, you guys. Uh, I, I, I want to recommend, in fact, I want to strongly encourage us to start making the Bible a friend again. You don't just have to hear it from the pulpit. I know some people have said, the Bible, when I read it on my own, it's so confusing, uh, I just let you interpret it. But no, I, I, yeah, you, there's a need for teachers to explain things and whatnot, but no, you need to own it for yourself because it's your imagination that needs to be formed by the biblical narrative. It's your character that needs to be challenged by the Spirit through the biblical narrative. Uh, commit to being a Bible reader. Now, I'll end with just a, 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 these resources here. Uh, people often ask, what's the best translation? And that's a little bit subjective, but the truth is that the NRSV is the inspired translation. No, it's the one, um, I, 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 actually my favorite is the TNIV, but now that's out of print. So the next best is the NRSV. That's the one I usually uh, teach out of. That's good for, for studying the Bible. If you're looking for more devotional purposes, the message. 
Uh, it's not a translation, so don't base your doctrine on that, but it's a, it's, it's a really good read. And, and you might find that very helpful. The message, Eugene Peterson's uh, uh, paraphrase of the Bible. Uh, two other resources I recommend uh, in, in terms of understanding the Bible. Megan Good, my good friend Megan Good, he wrote this book called The Bible Unwrapped. And it's so good as an introduction to the Bible, explaining the literature of it, the purpose of it, and all the rest. Uh, I encourage you, if you're going to make the Bible your friend, uh, get this book. It will kind of give you the roadmap for it. Another really great resource uh, these are really thick books, and they look academic, but they're really practical and useful. It's this called the, it's the InterVarsity Press uh, Background Commentary to the Old Testament and to the New Testament. Really, really, uh, what they do is every part of a passage that would be inexplicable to modern ears, they give the background to it. So you can understand, oh, that's why the Bible says that. Very helpful stuff as you're reading through the Bible. All right. Uh, Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you, Lord God, for giving us uh, the revelation of, of yourself on the sin-bearing person of Jesus Christ that reframes everything for us. Help us, Lord God, to receive your word, to understand your word, and to submit to your word. Help us, Lord God, to fall in love with your word, that we be a people who live in the story that you've given us to live in and not be conformed to the culture around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen, amen. amen. Okay, don't forget the muse on Tuesday. Uh, 4 o'clock. Don't forget we have gathering groups. Encourage people to get involved in those gathering groups and talk about the message and meet a lot of people around the world. Uh, we've got uh, prayer up front here if you're in the house, and we have prayer online if you're listening online. And if you want to go to a great party, come Friday to the tap, 9 o'clock, right, or 6 o'clock here at the church. God bless you guys. Love you. See you next week.